This is an ABC podcast. Bad Horrendous Sound is music to the ears of conservationists in regional New South Wales. It's the sound of male koalas calling for a mate. And they're certainly noisy about it. These sounds can be heard in a small thriving colony in a reserve on the Murrumbidgee River in the Riverina. And it's good news for conservation. The koalas there were wiped by the fur trade 50 years ago, but now efforts to re-establish the population has been successful. And it could be key to re-establishing populations of the endangered animal in other parts of the country. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wajak Country, Perth. Ancient Aboriginal rock carvings on the New South Wales central coast have been vandalised, prompting calls for better education about the significance of these places across Australia. Central Coast reporter Kira Prest visited some of the vandalised sites and filed this story. It's a misty, wet day on the New South Wales central coast and I'm heading down a track with some local Aboriginal people to see an ancient art site known as Bulgandry. It sits in the Brisbane Water National Park. The rock carvings here date back thousands of years, each telling an important story about Aboriginal culture and spirituality. As Gamilaroi, Mandiandanji and Awaba man Kevin Gavi Duncan explains. They're very special. You know, some of these sites are older than the, you know, the pyramids of Egypt. They're much older than Stonehenge and other places around the world. But I think in Australian culture, we don't, you know, regard or recognise these properly, which we should. There hasn't been enough education put in regards to Aboriginal culture and history. The site has been vandalised recently with motorbike tracks and scratches evident over the rock carvings. Gabby says this shows the community doesn't understand or respect Aboriginal culture. Imagine um, walking into an art gallery and rearranging the Mona Lisa or something. or defacing Defacing the engravings on the pyramids of Egypt or something. More damage has been done at a separate sacred Aboriginal women's site in a state forest nearby, which Dundalimu Dabaga Wiradjuri woman Minmai Gugubara took me to. Before entering, she cleansed me with some gum leaves and announced us onto the site. Yo! Minmai Gugubara! Cross your feet. Climb your body. And you're opening your palms. That's it. Minmai shows me some of the damage on the rocks. There are remnants of fires and some of the rock art has been scratched over, including the sacred carving of the emu dinner one. I cried. I literally cried when I come here. It was a sunny day and I needed that connection. I needed to come here as, as an Aboriginal woman of what I've been invited here to do. And I dropped to my knees and I cried. The first time that I ever come to this site, I was given one of my totems and it was in the belly of her body. To come here and to see her defaced, I literally dropped to my knees and I cried. This is not, it's not a joke. When you don't go and pull down a cathedral or, you know, destroy the Egyptian pyramids. You come here and you tell me, oh, well, this is my walking track. I don't really care about what it was before. This is older than any of those things that you'll fly over to the other side of the world and pay $12,000 to go and look at. It, it's not just a drawing on the ground. It's like what this, this is made to be now. 
this is our stories, this is our lifeblood. Under the state's National Parks and Wildlife Act, it is an offence to harm or desecrate an Aboriginal object or place. The maximum penalty for individuals found guilty of damaging an Aboriginal place is a $550,000 fine or imprisonment for two years or both. Historian from the University of Sydney, Tristan Jones, says vandalism is happening at important cultural sites right across Australia. Recently, two men were convicted and fined for vandalising sacred Uluru cave art. Vandalism of places like that really represent, whether it's an unwillingness, I'm not sure, but definitely an undereducated sort of general Australian public on the significance of these places to Aboriginal communities, but, you know, to the broader, bigger story of the significance of that story to, you know, Australian and global history. Dr Jones says it's clear that better consultation is needed with Aboriginal people right around Australia. A lot of these government agencies who are, you know, charged with the management and stewardship of these places, you know, are very under-resourced. You know, it's, it's a very complex issue which requires a lot of people thinking through resolutions, the need to sort of sit down with Aboriginal people and do a lot of talking and doing a lot of, more importantly, listening, and then really resourcing cultural heritage managers to be able to sort of action protection for those cultural sites. In the meantime, Minmai would like to see the public walking track through the sacred women's site removed and more natural barriers like rocks and vegetation put in place to ensure the site is kept for Aboriginal women. In a statement, a spokesperson for the Forestry Corporation of New South Wales says they don't promote or disclose the information about the sites and that there are already some natural barriers in place to discourage access. Meanwhile, the state's National Parks and Wildlife Service says it works with local Aboriginal groups to manage and protect cultural sites, but that it's always looking at ways to improve how it educates people on the significance of these places. Central Coast reporter Kira Prance bringing us that story about vandalism of some local Aboriginal cultural sites on the New South Wales Central Coast. And you can check out the video and online article on Australia Wide's webpage. You're listening to Australia Wide right now with me, Sinead Mangan. Koalas introduced to the Riverina region of New South Wales could hold the key to successfully re-establishing populations of the endangered animal. It's believed that koalas around Narandra were wiped out by fur trading and habitat loss 50 years ago, so a small colony was reintroduced to a reserve on the Murrumbidgee River. As Emily Doak reports, new research has shown the population is thriving. On the banks of the Murrumbidgee River near Narandra, the koalas are courting. It's music to the ears of Andrew Baker from the National Parks and Wildlife Service, who's been installing sound recorders to help document the distribution of the local koala population. We could certainly hear the males all through the night bellowing away, um, trying to find a lady. (laughs) There's not necessarily a direct relationship between the number of calls and the number of koalas. It could be one particularly boisterous male who's just bellowing constantly or it could be a number Um, but I guess importantly for us in terms of this question getting those bellows indicates yes there are koalas or no there aren't. A record has been installed at Berenbed Station a cattle and livestock operation east of Narandra. Farm manager Tony McManus says it's always a thrill to see a koala ambling across the paddocks. The last six months we've probably seen six 
or more koalas, sometimes in the paddock, sometimes up trees, a few through our garden. The other day I was just fueling up the ute and one just walked beside, beside the fuel bowser. So yeah, they are here and I think historically they haven't been here in the past and I think their numbers are increasing. 23 koalas were introduced to Narandra in 1972 in the first official translocation for conservation in New South Wales. Research using drones and thermal imaging has shown the population's now grown to more than 290, over 1,600 hectares. Andrew Baker says, importantly, DNA testing's also shown the population is genetically diverse. It was a big relief when we found out that yeah, the genetics are diverse and that, yes, the koalas are very healthy and being chlamydia-free is just a really important for them, yeah. The experience at Narandra is being studied as a model for introducing koalas to new habitats as part of the $190 million New South Wales koala strategy. The aim is to re-establish populations in eight new locations by 2026 and sites will be chosen in consultation with First Nation communities with consideration of the impact of climate change. Murrumbidgee Landcare's Ling Matheson says the research will also help conserve vegetation locally. With this current project, we should be able to find at least getting towards the edges of the periphery of the colony and we can then look at things that may be hindering the koalas from actually moving beyond their current population. It allows us to understand where there is healthy remnant vegetation, where there's healthy regeneration of vegetation and just just to tailor those little projects and, and, and funding bodies to those little areas that just need that little bit more vegetation. Back at Berenbed Station, Tony McManus is also keen to see the study's results. Well, I think it's very important. You know, that's a big part of what we do now. It's we, we, we need the wildlife and we sort of conserve that, and especially the koala bear. There's a lot of billabongs here um, and a lot of timber on you know, Red River gums. I think that's not an issue. We've got enough farming country away from that and there's a lot of trees and regrowth through there, so I'm sure that's beneficial to the koala as well. Tony Backmanis from Berenbid Station there in the New South Wales Riverina speaking to our reporter Emily Doak. Trying to find suitable childcare in a regional town is a perennial problem for parents and the situation is particularly dire right now in the northern town of Colinara in the Kimberley region of Western Australia. The dearth of childcare places is forcing new parents, podiatrist Lucy Shorter and her husband who's a distiller, Richard White, to make tough career and financial choices. So I've gone from being working full-time for 10 years and then I've had probably eight months off and now I'm just point two, so one day a week. It hasn't hurt my career professionally, it's just economically I'm earning this money. Yeah, I don't know, we don't know that many people we could call upon uh, for childcare who aren't working during the day or have their own kids to look after already. Lucy would love to work three, four, five days a week and I think think in a town like this that's so short-staffed in medical professions and teaching and they're the industries that generally become more affected with lack of childcare. there's just a knock-on effect socially as well so as much as we would like to be working for financial reasons socially and in terms of regional towns being able to fill those supply shortages in staffing yeah it's just a bit of a real dead spot a bit of a black hole I guess. If your kid does become sick, you've already paid for that day of daycare, whether they're there or not. 
but you can't take them to daycare so you have to take the day off paid work yourself to be home with the child so economically it doesn't always make sense. Culinary couple Lucy Shorter and Richard White and you could hear their son Douglas there in the background. Now they were lucky enough to get childcare but Culinary's main childcare provider is the Ewan Early Learning Centre. Manager Yana Adlam said it has 100 families on the waiting list and that list is growing. She says the centre desperately needs more housing for its mostly fly-in, fly-out staff because rentals are few and far between in town. We are lucky enough to hire staff and then they can't find housing so they have to turn the jobs down. Um, I think ideally for us would be if we could get access to maybe grow housing to support you know, our staff with housing and, and recruitment that was Ewan Early Learning Centre Manager Yana Atlam. This is where this story has a silver lining. Recognising the difficulty for childcare staff to find available and affordable housing in the town, the local council plans to install modular homes to relieve the chronic shortage. Shire of Wyndham East Kimberley Chief Executive Vernon Lawrence told our reporter Ted O'Connor that some of that housing will be made available for much needed childcare workers. At the moment, it's it's not unusual to to find a, a house for rent if you can find a house for rent for seven eight hundred dollars a week here in town, and when you're talking about a a childcare worker, um, they can't afford that on, on on that sort of salary. So the housing crisis certainly has you know impacted the the ability for for childcare workers to come to town. So affordable rentals in town, um, if they were available, would certainly certainly help um, alleviate that. A lot of industries in Kununurra, being a remote town, are covered under grow housing or government housing. People like um, nurses, teachers, doctors, police officers. But there isn't anything like that available for childcare workers. I know, childcare workers fall outside that. So, you know, it's not only the housing side of things, is that... um, you know, it's it's package package stuff that's available for 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 teachers. They um, there's a lot more available in in a, in a remuneration package for a teacher as opposed to a childcare worker. So so yes, it it is is a hangover difficult to recruit staff, and and when you do recruit really really good staff and train them up, the next logical step for them to do is to move into the education profession. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 one of almost like a little bit of a revolving door t- at times. And what sort of solutions is the Shire looking at to um, try and get housing for childcare workers mm. so you and can grow its um, places? Certainly, the Shire's got land that it would like to develop, and um, both both here in town and 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 a little bit out of town, where where we can put a affordable housing units on. We have a, a project that we we just recently started in the last couple of weeks. We're still busy scoping it out, but we're looking at putting up ten one-bedroom ensuite um, properties, very small small houses. Not Dongo quality, it'll be a much better quality than that. Um, but we're looking at putting up um, 10 of those and that then we'll make available to childcare at, at an affordable, affordable amount. Shire of Wyndham East Kimberley, Chief Executive Vernon Lawrence speaking there to our reporter Ted O'Connor. At 90 years young, great-grandmother Valerie Moritz is running a massive wildlife park in the wheat belt of Western Australia and says she won't be stopping until she gets her letter from King Charles at 100. She's fit as a fiddle and says her secret to longevity is just good luck and ballroom dancing. Her late husband started the park decades ago when he put a fence around an emu because tourists wanted to see native wildlife. Reporter Brianna Fiore visited the park to meet the Hyden stalwart. 
When I reach 90, I'm hoping to be sunbaking on the coast somewhere. Or maybe doing pottery or knitting. If I don't get arthritis, that is. But not everyone gives up working at 10 years shy of a century. Valerie Moritz sure hasn't. She's running a wildlife park in a tiny town called Hyden, in rural Western Australia, about 300 kilometres east of Perth. Well, right now we're in the Waverock Wildlife Park, and this was set up in the early 70s, mid-1970s, when tourist people started coming through and petrol restrictions had been lifted and there were more people travelling. And one person said to my husband, I've never, you can't see your native birds or animals because mostly they're nocturnal. And uh, so he, he uh, anemia, walked into the caravan park next door and he put a, um, a circle of well mesh around it. And that, that was how it started. And then he had a big cage made and he caught some pink and grey galahs and put them in. And then we were reported to the Parks and Wildlife because we didn't have permission to do this sort of thing. Val's collection of animals grew over the years. Legally, she tells us. The emu there was hand-raised. His name's Peepy because that's, that's the noise he makes. So we call him Peepy and he comes running. <laughs> He's a fun, or she's a funny thing. And she laid one egg, which was very exciting. <laughs> oh, just the one. So far. <laughs> OK, and can you talk to us about what other animals are out here now? Um, you can't... You can't display all Australian animals, but we have some, I guess, ferals. We've got a, we've got a camel, we've had donkeys, uh, we've got a good selection of, of chooks and ducks for kids to see, uh, some native ducks, which are interesting, um, and there's kangaroos, no, normal kangaroos, western greys, and uh, some white kangaroos. And when I lost my koalas, we've gone into reptiles, which are easier to, to obtain at this stage. So oh. But eventually we'll... We need more workers, so if you could have another worker, we can get koalas. Yeah. Wow. And um, do you have a favourite animal? No, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I think they're all pretty good. Val looks a little bit like Betty White. She has the same hair and upbeat demeanour. It takes her six hours to feed all her animals. She chops the food in the back shed, then carries giant pink and black buckets full of fruit and seeds across the park. I can barely keep up with her, but she tells me she won't be slowing down until she gets her letter from King Charlie at 100. As long as Charlie sends me a letter, it'll be right. <laughs> and whoever's Governor-General. <laughs> Is that what you're waiting for? You're waiting for your oh, letter? for sure. <laughs> Something else to put on the wall to give someone. <laughs> That's funny. And do you reckon you'll still be running this by the time oh, you're 100? I don't know. If, if, if you could get enough people to look after it, I'd certainly back off a bit, yeah. Val says there's no big secret to living a long and healthy life. Oh, I don't think there is one. I think it's just good luck. I really do. For years we, we did a lot of ballroom dancing, a lot of travelling and, and, you know, social stuff was great. There's no time for that. <laughs> OK, so ballroom dancing will, will keep you young and fit. Oh, that's, that's my advice. And you ask the boys if they can dance, if they've got two left feet or one cut off, I'm not sure what's wrong with them these days. It's odd. <laughs> Valerie Moritz speaking to our reporter, Brianna Fiore. Back in the 1970s, Brisbane man Ray Ashton noticed his wife struggling in the kitchen to cut a pineapple. Being a curious man, Ray came up with a solution, a solution that today sits in the Queensland Museum's Invention Collection. Our reporter, Cathy Border, has put this story together for us. She was 
having trouble trying to wrestle with a pineapple. And I said, looked at it and I thought, I went into the workshop I had a, in front of a very old harem that had a very front um, room I used as a workroom. I went in there and I got a piece of tin and I bent it up a bit and I drove a couple of nails through it and I got, went and got a pineapple and it worked. What did your wife think of it? Oh, she was amazed. She was, yeah, yeah. You had quite the invention history. You like tinkering oh, with things? Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm, I can't help inventing things. I, like, you know, where, where do I go to work? And I, I worked in my brother's shoe factory for a while and the cutting machine was too hard to use and I made some alterations that made it really easy to use, you know. But I'm just a natural-born, you know, want to improve things. I'm a bit of a weird character. I never, never smoked, I never drank beer. But you tinkered. Four versions of the peeler are housed in the Queensland Museum's Invention Collection. Senior curator Liz Bissell. It was actually, you know, extremely popular because, you know, everyone, you know, sort of thought, oh, amazing, like something to make life a little bit easier um, and to reduce waste. So it's just a great example of Queensland ingenuity. you know, in the everyday, in something that we use every day. Ray's son Don remembers seeing the original pineapple peeler as a 10-year-old boy. He did take me in there once just to show me the very first one um, he made, which is just a thin ribbon of steel. We had a lot of pineapples. It was just a thing we did in our family, salads, you know, on Sundays or whatever. So we went, we did use a lot of pineapples. Who would have thought pineapples would play such a big role in your lives? I know, it's um, a bit of a thing in our family now. We still traditionally have to eat pineapples. It's just the done thing. It didn't really change our lives, apart from, you know... (laughs) us having to eat pineapples all the time. <laughs> but there was TV stardom when Ray and his pineapple peeler featured on The Inventors' ABC TV show in 1972. Good evening. Well, there are only just three more weeks before we have the final program of this year on November the 14th, where we're going to choose the Australian Inventor of the Year. He'll receive $3,500 from the Rural Bank and the Apex Association of Australia will fly him across to Geneva in Switzerland to attend the International Exhibition of Inventions over there. And what could have been? There was another invention, an electric knife. And this is why I, ha- I didn't take up Sunbeam's generous offer to, to, to have it and to make it. They offered me five cents for it and they said it could go to America. Money-wise... Did it mean a lot for the family? Not at all, no. I think, I think he, he, the various fees that he had to pay to the patent attorneys, you know, um, those sort of things, the marketing costs, uh, I think he got some money out of it, but it didn't really change our life at all. That inquisitive mind sometimes went a little too far, as son Don discovered with the family tractor. With his neck was a bit stiff. He didn't like turning his neck all the time to look at the back of it. So he came up with this idea of sitting on the bonnet sitting backwards on the tractor with the bonnet with the steering wheel between his legs and, and using the pedals the opposite way around and almost pretending it's a bulldozer so you could sort of have it in reverse but you're sort of driving forward and pushing the dirt with the blade instead of scraping it so he went further and actually put all these levers in which made it somewhat dangerous for us because you had to be very careful where you put your feet um, a few little workplace health and safety yeah, issues My, my here. wife actually refused to drive it after that. <laughs> there was a bit of a family issue there for a while. There was a time when Ray's pineapple peeler was a must-have and it coincided with the big pineapple being a major Queensland tourist attraction. Through its doors, pass more than a quarter of a million people a year, mainly enthusiastic tourists from southern states getting the most out of their visit to Queensland. I looked around and here she comes down with the manager 
with a pineapple peeler in his hand. Why can't we get this? <laughs> he wanted to pick up the phone and have that machinery all sent up to Brisbane. Did the big pineapple sell your invention? Uh, they had them there. There was counters full of them. At one time there, the, 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 when the buses pulled up, there were three ladies working at the table demonstrating the pineapple peeler and they would buy them by, you know, by two or three at a time. Not everyone was a fan. Very foolishly, I showed my pineapple peeler to the cannery. And they said, get out of here. Is that golden circle? Well, they, they, they weren't happy about it. They said, look, your invention is going to cut across our sales for our pineapple peelers, tin pineapple peelers. Well, blow them. You beat them. <laughs> <laughs> Wish I had one, pineapple peeler. That was Ray Ashton who invented the pineapple peeler and he was chatting there with Cathy Border who hasn't wrestled with the pineapple. They're really difficult things to cut. That is Australia Wide for this Monday. I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you have a lovely evening. Cheerio. This is an ABC podcast.